Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli. Cramer has the morning off. Futures have been slightly weak this morning as we come off Dow 30K for the first time on pace for the best month since 87. Uh, last session before the holiday, obviously, and a lot of data, GDP, durables, and there's more on the way. Our roadmap begins with the record rally, futures pointing to a softer open, but the Dow currently have its best monthly gain since January of 1987. Plus that EV revolution, well, at least it's rolling on in the stock market. Tesla tops half a trillion dollars in market value for the first time. Shares of Nikola, though, sinking this morning, this after failing to reassure investors that GM will not pull out of that $2 billion deal. And the COVID surge, cases and hospitalizations at record levels, by experts fear Thanksgiving could be a so-called accelerator event. Carl. Mike, uh, let's get your take on where you think sentiment is right now. I saw you uh, writing a little bit yesterday about about the fear and greed indices, pointing a little bit more to the greed. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, people are there's definitely a belief phase in this rally that's probably started this uh, comeback from March eight months ago, mostly has fed on on disbelief. And I think that uh, between the seasonal forces being strong uh, and uh, and this sense out there that we see uh, a little bit of a clearance toward uh, this, you know, post covid moment with the vaccines, it all did come together also, though, with a grab for cyclicals, laggards, anything that moves fast, anything that seems like it was really dented up by uh, by this whole phase. Now, sentiment, uh, it, it, you know, it's not a moment in time where people say, oh, you're all too bullish and now it has to stop. Uh, but there's no doubt about it that uh, that people are starting to feel it. And you're starting to see things like, you know, the percentage of stocks that are, you know, in a massive uptrend is the highest in seven years. Uh, so it's been a broad rally, uh, but it's one that now people are, are buying into. What's funny, though, Carl, is you say, you know, I, I do cite the fact that that fear greed index was 87, 88. But the number of people who respond affirmatively in agreement with the idea that everybody else is too bullish is also tremendous. Right. So there's still this sense out there of uh, nobody's over the idea that there's a disconnect, uh, a perceived disconnect between what's happening in the markets and the rest of the world. So I don't know that uh, that you can sort of say, well, that was fun. It's over. It's much more about one of the headwinds this market has to chew through if it's going to make further progress. The S&P, you know, we didn't talk about it. S&P 3635 doesn't have quite the same ring as Dow 30,000, but that was a record <laughs> yesterday, but only by a few points, right? We were still kind of noodling around these levels that we first hit briefly on November 9th when uh, we got that Pfizer news on the vaccine. You know, Mike, uh, we talked yeah, about, I- sorry, Carl, uh, Mike, we've talked about this for, for many months, this entrance of a relatively new cohort into the marketplace that seems to enjoy sort of speculation to some extent. Talking about individual traders using these new platforms, some of them or older platforms, but to be very active. I don't know what you hear or what you what you see or what you expect. I don't even know if you've noticed at about four or four thirty in the morning. Some of these people seem to get started and you start to see moves in stocks in these early trades, whether it's Palantir or Carnival Cruise Lines or Tesla. But they're here and they don't seem to be going away. No, and th- because they've gotten positive reinforcement largely, I think if you start on the premise that, you know, this is kind of uh, play money, uh, it, it's, it's a little bit of a video game. And I don't mean to, to belittle it. it it's obviously, it, it's numbers on a screen and lines on a screen and you're playing them and you're rooting for one direction and you're, you're thinking you have skill at it. And, and that's what it is. But there's a new energy in the market for that. And there's, a, there's an emotional sense that it's not just 
disciplined algorithms that know what the right sell levels are, that are going to play mean reversion, that are going to sort of keep things within the bands. And so there are these sections of the market like EVs, like anything related to crypto, like cannabis. Uh, and by the way, like old energy right now, which is flying because it's all beaten down a low price and high beta. So, yeah, it, it's in there. I don't I don't think that, again, that's how bill bull markets act on some uh, on some level. Yep. So it's one of those things where you sort of welcome it and fear it at the same time, Carl. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, to your larger point, uh, Mike, about energy, uh, crude back to 45 and change. Uh, I got to go back to March for that. Interesting piece in the journal this morning. Uh, they get a look at some internal documents at ExxonMobil, David, uh, planning, uh, planning documents. And their general expectation is that oil prices will fall by 11 to 17 percent in each of the next seven years as uh, renewables and EVs obviously become more of a force. But talk about disconnects. That's not stopping crude from getting back into the high 40s. Well, interestingly, speaking of disconnects as well, there is a belief that under a Biden administration, you will have it. It will become more difficult to do new drilling. So whatever you got going on is fine, but don't expect to potentially be doing new stuff. And that could result in in not shortages, but in supply constraints to a certain extent, or at least the market not being as flooded as it has been, Carl, which would result in the price going up, which we've been seeing over the last uh, few sessions. So things cut both ways. Of course, we do talk about the EV revolution often. That's what we started the show with, watching Tesla's market cap eclipse half a trillion dollars. But of course, as a percent of automobiles on the road right now, it is extraordinarily small. It is going to grow. It is eventually going to become an issue. But we talked to Mike Worth about it from Chevron. Last week, making the point, of course, you have to. It's part of their talking points at this point that what I think it only represents 25 percent of their total in terms of at least what's used actually of the product they're getting out of the ground in an automobile, Carl. But we're keeping a close eye on ExxonMobil for any for any number of reasons, including, of course, that dividend, the yield of which is very high right now for the company, uh, but which continues to be at least a question mark in terms of their capital allocation. Uh, indeed. Uh, and then we'll talk more about uh, what Nikola told Kramer last night. Mike, I see uh, City takes Fisker to buy a uh, pretty thinly covered name, but they go to 26, uh, implies 60 percent upside. And then Jonas over at Morgan Stanley today cuts Ford to equal weight on what he's calling uh, EV transition headwinds. So there's going to be a lot of chop in this space over the next uh, few quarters and years. There's no doubt about it. I, I don't know, uh, you know what basis you're raising the fiscal price target, but if you're looking at some comps, uh, if, whether they be the, the Chinese EV companies or not, everything's being, uh, being marched higher. It is ironic. The market is not really willing, and, it, and this is often the case with any industry, willing to look at you know, an integrated kind of you know, old economy with some new economy stuff growing within it, like Ford, and, and try to assign the value uh, to uh, to the new business at anything like what the pure plays are, are running for. We get that. Uh, although maybe, David, the exception to this right now is Disney, which is back at the old highs uh, in terms of its share price uh, with theme parks mostly closed and uh, and basically people giving uh, apparently a Netflix type multiple to uh, Disney Plus subs. That's what they wanted. That's yeah. what they wanted. They've been very strong, of course, out of the gate. There's still some promotion in there. Remember, of course, you had the Verizon uh, deal uh, where people got it a year free. Start, that'll start coming off at some point, and so we'll keep a close eye on subs. But overall, we all know it's been an extremely positive launch of Disney Plus, and certainly it's benefited to a certain extent from how many people have been home longer hours than they might have been otherwise. Uh, 
And you're right. That's that's the key. I mean, they have not been penalized that much by the closure of the of the theme parks or at least the reduced capacity of the theme parks, Mike. Now, overall in media, you know, they are the best. Well, Netflix is up 49 percent. this yeah. year. I don't need to tell you, you know, those numbers off. You, yeah. know, you probably recite them before you go to sleep every night <laughs> in terms of the percentage gains for various stocks. But Disney only up four percent. Guys, I did want to mention some news as well as we kind of uh, end here, which is Viacom in the same area uh, getting a deal done. I mentioned it yesterday. The sale of Simon and Schuster uh, just announced uh, Bertelsmann is the buyer, uh, and the price tag there is quite well, almost astonishing. Two point one seven five billion in cash is what we're talking about. And why do I say that? Well, that's a multiple of about fifteen times um, EBITDA, and that is quite a lot. Uh, perhaps more than we'd been expecting. Uh, certainly more than perhaps Viacom had when it began this process. There were people talking about the asset being worth perhaps a billion, a billion two. You're talking about, as I understand, about 155 million or so uh, in uh, EBITDA. So you can put that multiple on that. Now, there'd been some question and will continue to be about an antitrust, uh, the antitrust risk of this. Bertelsmann owns both Random House and Penguin. Uh, they would have market share of the, on, the, on the order of some 35%. Now, some will say, listen, market share is not an indication of market power. But I would note as well, I am told at least that this does include the language is not there in the release. In the release, they simply say a Bertelsmann has agreed to take all steps necessary to obtain regulatory approvals. I am told, though, that is being viewed as what we call a hell or high water provision, namely that they'll do whatever it takes to get that done, because you do want antitrust security, so to speak, if you are Viacom. It's great to sign up a deal at that number, but if you can't close the deal, it doesn't really matter much. There had been competition here. Uh, News Corp's HarperCollins unit had been a significant bidder as well, I'm told, uh, but obviously falling short for a price, by the way, that is just far in excess of what people had anticipated when this asset was put on the market. Fortunately for Viacom, well, however you want to view it, they also put their headquarters in Midtown up. It's called BlackRock, where CBS uh, has been housed, uh, and their studio on the far west side. That market, Carl, for office buildings and the like in New York, probably not what it was a year ago. But they're taking in some serious (laughs) money uh, right now over at Viacom. And the stock prices rebounded sharply from the incredible lows it saw only a few months ago. Yeah, David, and it's hard not to notice this one line. Proceeds will be used to invest in strategic growth priorities, including streaming, yep. and to fund the dividend, pay down debt. It's kind of nice to have $2 billion to put to work on fresh content. No doubt. Uh, and right, that's why it fits right in with what Mike was talking about with Disney, because this is a very important part of the strategy at Viacom as well. There are some questions about what Paramount Plus will look like, uh, exactly how much of it and how they're going to choose to make content for other providers and also have their own direct to consumer but everybody's got to have one discovery i was talking to malone last week about it they're probably going to have one in the not too distant future as well everybody's got to have direct to consumer the question becomes just how many of these services will people want to subscribe to do you need to be on all these platforms roku apple tv amazon fire all of them to even be able to get to that consumer how important is that uh and how do you price them by the way, coming back to, to direct-to-consumer at Disney, Mike, that was the key thing. That's $6.99. Yeah, exactly. That price, moment yeah. when they said that price, that really shook everybody up. Yeah. Carl? Guys, guys we'll take a break here. A lot of uh, earnings news we've not yet gotten to, including Gap and Nordstrom, Deer, Dell, HP, with uh, some new uh, data on the way at the top of the hour, new homes, consumer sentiment, as well as you see futures a bit mixed here, but NASDAQ's going to take the lead at the open. We're back in a moment. 
Today is expected to be the busiest day for air travel since the start of the pandemic back in March. Phil LeBeau is at Chicago's O'Hara Airport. He's got a look at just how much of a Thanksgiving rush the airlines really are expecting. Phil. David, you know, I've been doing this for more than 20 years, and I have to say that the crowds that we're seeing here today, the slowest it has been since back after 9-11. Even during the recession, it seemed like it was busier than what we're seeing so far today. How many people will be flying today? All of them masked, by the way. About 1.1 million people across the country. Compare that to what we would usually see on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Last year, it was about 2.4, 2.5 million people. So you're seeing a decided drop in the number of people flying. Yet this will be the busiest day, and Sunday will also be the busiest day since the pandemic began. Where do we see people going if they're not heading home to various locations around the country? The airlines expect a lot of people to go down to Florida. Warmer weather, the state is not as shut down as other states around the country, and as a result, the airlines have been adding more flights there. They're also noticing an increase in the number of cancellations at the last minute. That's likely wearing, uh, weighing on the number of people who are flying today. The expectation is that we're going to see passenger levels down anywhere between 52 and 55 percent compared to the same time last year. So it is a decided drop. The airline stocks have been moving higher along with the rest of the market. But guys, it is a little surreal. Carl, you usually see it much more crowded out here at O'Hare. You can tell that people, perhaps they're heeding the warning from the CDC that you should just not travel for Thanksgiving because it is much quieter than even I expected. I knew it would be slower, but I thought we'd see a few more people out here. Yeah. That's a fascinating look on the ground, Phil. Our thanks to you, and we'll come back to you later on today. Uh, Phil Abo watching what would normally be, obviously, the story of the morning, and that is Thanksgiving travel. You know, uh, Mike, I'm, I, I think back to Bill Miller in the spring, said that airline trades were basically a, a trade on the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, there is news today that uh, Pfizer could ship 6 million doses within 24 hours of regulatory clearance. And Goldman takes a look at uh, Dr. Slowey's prediction that you could have uh, herd immunity by May, and they say that's feasible given their current supply forecasts. Yeah, I mean, the market has absolutely taken all that to heart. And when it comes to airlines, they're not just really a vaccine play. They're also cyclicals, they're laggards, and they're massive beneficiaries of a very generous credit market right now, in which these companies have taken advantage of. All those things are basically your, your top four or five of what's working right now. And, I, you know, at some point, maybe the market uh, has to maybe test its, uh, its confidence that we're that close to a back to normal uh, phase uh, in, in all this. But at the moment, uh, willing to look through what's going on right now. And also you're starting to see some commentary even in real time about how well positivity rates are curling down. And, uh, and it seems like uh, people willing to wait just because of the strong seasonal period and the sense that people had clenched up around the election so much uh, as uh, you know, and a lot of that uh, a lot of that uh, tension uh, is obviously getting freed up uh, right now, guys. Um, we're going to take a look at another look at the futures. Here we are as we count down uh, to the opening bell. A little bit of spillback on the uh, on the Dow after uh, crossing uh, 30,000, just down 46 points. So that brings it right around the 30,000 level uh, at this point. S&P 500 flat at a record high. Also indications of maybe a, a re-rotation back into growth as the Nasdaq uh, was up yesterday and also uh, outperforming now. Back in a minute. Washington and Wall Street are mourning the loss of a familiar face to CNBC. Ed Lazier 
has died from pancreatic cancer at the age of 72. Lazier served as chairman of President George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. He was a professor of economics at Stanford. President Bush issued a statement in remembrance of Lazier. He said, quote, Eddie was a trusted confidant who helped guide us out of the financial crisis. He was a beloved colleague at the White House by all who knew him. Most of all, Eddie was a loving husband to Vicky and a proud father to Julie. Laura and I send them our heartfelt condolences as they remember the life of a great man. David, this one, uh, this one hit hard yesterday, uh, most, most notably because he guided our viewers through a lot of the, uh, the confusing world of, of labor economics, and our, our viewers are better for it. Yeah, no doubt. Very straightforward man, uh, always uh, willing to help, as you say, sort of give insight and guidance around complicated topics, uh, Carl, and certainly we will miss, miss having that insight from Mr. Luzier. Yeah. Uh, Rick Santelli, you talked to him the most, and our thoughts are with his family. Yeah, it really does hit hard, Carl. Uh, I didn't find out till late last night, early this morning, and uh, unemployment Fridays just aren't going to be the same for me, and I'm sure viewers will feel the same way. It isn't that Ed told you where the market was going to go or was able to decipher everything in a jobs report, but A, it was the fact that he always delivered his comments with a big smile. He, he always tried to find uh, the reality to a report, uh, not with any biases, whether it was political or economic, uh, just a straight shooter. But as I've been saying all day to anybody I, I've had this conversation with, and everybody's going to, of course, uh, really miss Ed, especially when uh, we're, we're coming up with the jobs report uh, next uh, Friday. But ultimately, I think what I'll miss most about him is the fact that you know, he was a great patriot, a great American, and uh, he used his intellect in a way uh, to share and to help everybody understand topics that were very difficult for many. And let's face it, there's a lot of on the other hands with economists. With Ed, he pretty much gave you exactly what he thought, and he did it with class. Rick, uh, thanks for helping us remember him. Uh, Ed Lazier, dead at 72. A special report from CNBC, Dow 10,000. It looks like we are making history on Wall Street today. The first time the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above the 10,000 mark. Up 83 points, about the high for the session. First time ever above 15,000 for the Dow and a new high for the S&P. We do expect the Dow to crack 20K for the first time in its 120-year history, and it is done. For the first time ever, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has closed above 25,000. It's the 5,000-point mark we've crossed in just the last year or so. Never gets old, David. Uh, some of those <laughs> yeah. milestones, right? No, they don't. I mean, I know I, you like the archive footage. I love the. Yeah, I'm sorry we didn't see more of it. Um, I also like to point out the Dow is a statistically irrelevant index, and I also like to point out, of course, Mike, as you know, simple math and percentages. So clearly, sure. it gets smaller and smaller percentage-wise in terms of the gains we need to hit these milestones. Which is why we only make a fuss at on the 5,000-point increments. Now. Right. I mean, it's Instead not like 1, the 1,000 points. Got it. Um, what is interesting, and it, it almost never have you been able to look back and say that a big round number 1,000-point threshold was, you know, a major turning point, a, a, a peak. But the 25,000 one is, is interesting just in terms of the cadence of the market right now. It's early 2018. Uh, there's been market been barreling higher for a year. And and really did just slice right above it and, uh, you know, without any trouble of 20, uh, 25,000 in January 
of 2018. That's when everybody was very bold up. You started to see a lot of the sentiment stuff you're seeing now goes back to 2018 in terms of bullishness, in terms of the extended nature of this of this little short term ramp. And it wasn't like some cataclysm after that, but it, it peaked in late January. You were contending with that level of 25,000 for a long time thereafter uh, throughout that entire year and beyond. So, you know, just something to think about as you have the sort of mental accounting of where we are uh, in all this stuff, uh, Carl. Right. And of course, uh, Kramer tried to encapsulate what uh, the number itself does to sentiment and what the prospect of visible vaccine distribution does for the market in the months to come. Here's what he said last night. I think that what's happening is there is a happy days are here again, somewhat justified, because if we can get this thing under control, it is going to be like the end of prohibition. <laughs> That's a, that was a big day, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet it was. 1933. I'm not sure everyone was thinking about buying stocks, but it was a big party. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to party. Um, yeah, we'll sure. keep an eye on that. Obviously, uh, there's a lot more wood to chop uh, between here and there, uh, as, as we all know. I did see that uh, Moderna uh, finalized a deal with the European Commission to, per- uh, to sell about 80 million doses. Uh, so Europe's going to get in line for this vaccine. We're starting to see some state governors like Texas uh, talk about in what order uh, workers uh, and Americans will be getting the vaccine. So that's all going to be part of the market calculus uh, in the uh, months and quarters to come as we get closer here uh, to the opening bell. You know, we haven't gotten to a lot of the earnings uh, from last night, David, as we as we await that. But Gap and Nordstrom and Dell and HP are going to be in focus on this last uh, session before the holiday. Yeah, I was just looking at Gap, uh, which does appear as we uh, get ready for that opening bell, Carl, to be ready to open substantially lower. Of course, we've talked about the incredible move that Gap has made, somewhat surprisingly, one would think, given its place in the mall and the thought that mall traffic or the lack thereof would be a death blow to the company. But uh, they reported a strong number. I mean, same store sales up 5%. Now, overall, flat, because remember, they're still closing stores. So their overall sales number about the same as it was a year ago at, at Gap. But they did come in with that 5%. But, Mike, uh, the market does not seem to appreciate it right now. The stock had been moving up dramatically into this yeah. print. Moving up dramatically and then also got an upgrade for the extra little bit uh, of upside. And so uh, just a little too much to absorb right here. It wasn't really about this past quarter. But in general, you know, Gap's been placed in that category of these old chain retailers that have really uh, kind of got a greater sense of urgency about closing more stores. The market seems to like that. Also, at the same time, financially, you know, they're going to be able to make it through uh, and uh, some new leadership. So it seems like a lot of things fell into place for that uh, that rally and just having you know, a little bit of, uh, of give back right here as really brick and mortar retail has been one of the strongest laggard sectors, previous laggard sectors uh, this month in November, Carl. Yeah, uh, operating expenses up eight. And they did talk about pressure on margin, guys, uh, as pertains to shipping costs, which brings us to FedEx and UPS. Uh, Bloomberg's got a piece this morning, David, about just getting delivery vans uh, for holiday uh, is going to be tough uh, and, and, and a bit of a cost squeeze, given everything else they've had to do this uh, this year in terms of costs regarding mitigation of COVID, protection of their own workers. But you couple that with this story on Peloton, that some of the delivery times, missed delivery dates, unacceptable in the company's language, <laughs> is going to pressure holiday if you're looking to buy just about anything. Yeah, I think people want your orders uh, almost immediately. As of Monday, if you want to get it by Christmas, maybe what you start hearing, uh, possibly. But, of course, what we haven't missed is this incredible move. And, well, all right, Peloton is unbelievable. 
277%, though selling off a bit over the last, let's call it, month or two. But UPS and FedEx, Mike, have been uh, amazing stories. I mean, they were not in the best place, it was thought, kind of earlier in the year. Uh, and even early in, well, like so many other things in the pandemic, but wow, uh, yeah. the accretion of market cap for both, just so you know, I mean, UPS up 42%, and FedEx, you can see right there, up 93% year to date. Yeah, FedEx too, I mean, what, the setup was a couple of years in the wilderness. I mean, that had been a troubled stock, the company was uh, missing uh, quarter after quarter, and, and not just, uh, obviously, the, the delivery economy that we have right now come, comes to the rescue, but this idea that, you know, there's this boom in buying of stuff, and most of it's getting delivered. But every time, uh, you know, this, this time of year, we start hearing about that's the choke point in the economy is just the logistics of relying on uh, on these companies and uh, see if there's you know any give back right now, but not really. Also, as I said, everyone loves the the cyclical stocks, the ones that are kind of leveraged to a global recovery. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's working right now uh, and kind of keeping the, the Dow transports together too, just to grab another Dow Jones index for you. Yeah, which has been setting some new highs of its own. You know, David, it's funny. Uh, we think of some companies in sort of a Jekyll and Hyde way. We were mentioning Disney earlier. On the one hand, it's streaming play. On the other hand, it's a, a reopening play with the parks. HP is another story, right? Uh, leading the S&P right now, but uh, revenue ahead, uh, 62 cents beats by a dime, where you sell more computers, but it's not for the office in this case. It's for the home. Yeah, a huge move uh, up in, in, in the sales into the home, as you say. Uh, net revenue was, what, $56.6 billion. That was down 3.6, 2.3%, by the way, in constant currency from the prior year. But diluted net APS, 2 bucks, again, down a bit. But market is, uh, is quite happy with it. Um, and that stock has showed a little bit of life. You can see it lately after a significant downtrend. Man, you look at some of these charts, Mike, of the, yeah. of the opportunity that, of course, at the time it wasn't clear, that was available to investors back in March and April in terms of just the dives that so many stocks took as a result of what was obviously uh, just wholesale selling by yep. everybody. We didn't have any real certainty about what was coming, and we thought perhaps the market itself was in deep, deep trouble, and the economy clearly was. But all of that, so much uh, has ended up being so much of an opportunity. Uh, I mean, that chart is is reflective of so many others. Yeah, completely. Uh, it was a, a five week purge uh, of stocks and you went down 35 percent or so in the S&P 500. And really, all you could say near the bottom was things are so bad that usually they don't get worse. You can close your eyes, you know, and buy stuff that uh, that has the financial wherewithal to, to, to survive. And and that has certainly paid off. It's a it's a trickier. I mean, it was a tough bet then. Now it's trickier in terms of figuring out exactly what's priced in, because certainly disaster is no longer priced in. I mentioned earlier we might see a little bit of a kind of unwind of the rotation into cyclical and value. Uh, it's been it's been going on. If you look at this morning, some of the S&P leaders, it's uh, things like software, Salesforce, uh, ServiceNow, and uh, Etsy is up there, too. So, you know, a little bit of a, a pendulum shift back uh, after people got very, very excited about playing the reopening stuff, Carl. Um, Carl, you, you yeah, mentioned uh, HP. I did want to hit Dell also. Sometimes we kind of forget Dell, yeah. which is a larger company uh, and obviously does has traded publicly now for some time. The, the focus there for many people, of course, we're still quite a ways away. It's the last time I did serious reporting on it is VMware, of course, the 83 percent they own, which they are going to uh, separate uh, in an effective way from the company. Although, again, for tax purposes, that really is not going to happen for some time. Uh, they did report earnings, though. Uh, revenue was up 3 percent, 23 and a half billion. 
Operating income of $1.1 billion. That's a 35% increase. But you see the shares are, which have been quite strong, up 25% are down uh, right now. Of course, you know, this didn't get that much notice last week. Uh, Greg Lemkow, very senior at uh, Goldman Sachs, going over to, to uh, Michael Dell, uh, well, MSD Capital, which is not going to just be the family office, Mike, for, for Mr. Dell any longer, who, of course, is one of the wealthiest men in this country or not, if not, not only, but in the world, and seems poised to actually become a lot wealthier. They are really going to be focused in doing more deals there in terms of private equity in particular, not as much as straight public equity investing, although John Phelan, and they've, they've had great success in that. But worth mentioning, uh, yeah. you know, it's not just the ownership of Dell, man. Michael Dell has it going on in a lot of different areas. Yeah, well, you know, he, he got such an early start at such a young age, and it's been building for so long. And then if you think about it, uh, obviously he's been through uh, take private transaction and the reverse. I mean, it, you know, he's been kind of at the hub of, of a lot of these things for a while. But, yeah, the Greg, uh, Greg Lemkin news was was interesting last week and, uh, you know, going to become some kind of a contender and just, you know, buying longer term businesses and assets. Uh, in that, yeah. Alternative uh, in that asset management, Carl, to, to some extent. I don't think they're going, you know, going to be competing head on with the Blackstones of the world, right. but they are not. This is not a family office just running Michael Does Money. It's going to take outside capital and they're going to be doing a lot of deals. So we'll keep a keep an eye on that, Carl. Uh, Mike, I did want to get you on a few things, um, namely the uh, deceleration in durables. Uh, we got one three instead of prior one nine. Claims at 778 was a little bit hotter than uh, some had expected. We know what consumer sentiment has done uh, for the last couple of weeks here. And then, you know, J.P. Morgan keeps warning about year-end rebalancing from yes. uh, balanced mutual funds. They got to sell 160 billion to, to maintain their their balance. How much? How much vulnerability do you think there is in some of the data rollover and then positioning uh, rollovers? I think some of the supply issues, this is sort of looming uh, potential mechanical selling that's out there, is something that's going to be a storyline for a couple of weeks. It doesn't mean that it uh, undercuts the entire run, but it, it, it certainly creates a restraint on what the market might be able to do. You see uh, not just the pension and, uh, and asset allocator rebalancing, but, you know, there's going to be a noisy entry of Tesla into the S&P 500. You know, these index funds know how to do this, but it's a big one. And the bigger Tesla gets before it gets in the index, the more you got to sell the other 499 stocks. So I think there's a lot of noisy stuff happening at a time when already you've had the market run a long distance in a short period of time. The data is a little bit less of a concern in the sense of, I think the market is saying, look, a lot of this stuff is October. We're, we're pricing in first and second quarter of next year. Obviously, there's a level at which it really starts to worry you. We have a jobs number next week. That'll probably get a little more uh, close attention on that front. But the bond market is not really repricing itself for new slowdown. And I think that's something that can, uh, I think uh, equity investors can lean back on. Uh, guys, we've been keeping an eye this week, uh, as we do every week, on EV. We mentioned Tesla at the top of the show. It's down a bit, but uh, its market value is still well above uh, $500 billion. Uh, but we've also been watching these SPACs that continue to get created, by the way. We've got a couple of new ones this morning, but also those that have announced deals or either closed deals or announced deals to uh, take public EV-related companies. Um, and, of course, the leader there or the first one out of the gate, that was before the pandemic, right before, remember it well, was Nikola, uh, CEO on with um, Jim last night on Mad Money. One of the keys there, of course, had been uh, when they will officially sign, I guess, this deal with GM to manufacture their Badger trucks. Um, let's take a listen when Jim asked specifically about that transaction. 
we're interested in, in GM's Hydrotech fuel cell system. It's very interesting to us. We're interested in their uh, Ultium battery system. Both of those things are interesting to us, and we continue to talk to them about those things. So not, nothing definitive there at all, just continuing to talk about it. Now, GM did choose to include it in that presentation they put online uh, last week in terms of their various efforts in EV. By the way, guys, I'm sure you've seen GM and Ford at Morgan Stanley awakening the EV SPAC within, uh, talking about the efforts those large companies have been making in terms of uh, 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 electric vehicles and referencing sort of the SPAC craze as well. You can see GM has been very strong. Ford has also, Ford is downgraded to an equal weight. They reiterate uh, their overweight at Morgan Stanley on GM, talking about their expectations there, of course, for both companies in terms of their focus on that. You mentioned earlier, Carl, already that Fisker uh, initiation of coverage. Uh, and what we can see, a lot of these names, well, those names are down. And then some of these more speculative names, Mike, the one I've been watching is the CIIG Merger Corp. It's a company called Arrival that it is going to be taking public. They announced the deal. It hasn't closed. That's down about 9%, but it's still up, oh, 143% or so <laughs> yeah. since in a week. Yeah. If you look at the leaders uh, on a given day this month at the NASDAQ, and it's all those things that you kind of barely have heard of, and, and they're all, they, they all have that kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of fad bingo of EVs back uh, uh, or something like that, preferably China uh, EV as well. You know, Mike, uh, on this uh, uh, topic, broadly speaking, we, we, I, I asked you about the speculative nature of the market. I don't know. If, have, you, have either of you guys taken a look at shares of Palantir uh, yeah. lately? And what's going on there? I mean, remember, this came, remember, it was a direct listing into the market. It, it, let's say it didn't, didn't go particularly well on its initial pricing. Uh, it, it's gone parabolic, Mike, Yeah, uh, just I, in, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I think a lot of it is that same court we were talking about that's gotten into it. I don't know where they get their information from or who they're talking to, but they like it now. Suddenly, it's a $44 billion market value. The, the storyline on the first move higher in the last couple of weeks was that um, somehow with a Biden win, uh, they have, you know, fewer perceived uh, conflicts or, or bigger companies be more willing to use them uh, as, uh, you know, as a vendor uh, because they won't necessarily have that kind of uh, overhang. I, I have no idea if that's at all behind this, but it absolutely did start once you started uh, getting some certainty around uh, around the election. And now it's just, you know, one of these things that uh, has a life of its own. Uh, Carl, it's just gone vertical. Carl, we may have, I think we've lost Carl. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it over. You can see that uh, sometimes the audio goes out uh, on these home setups. So uh, let me send it over to Rick Santelli now, get his uh, bond report. Rick. Hi, David. Yes. You know, this morning, and I was listening to Mike Santoli, who is the best play-by-play -play market guy in the business, and he's correct. The Treasury market is not looking for any major relapse. It's looking ahead. It's looking to get past coronavirus. It's optimistic, in a way, about the vaccines and the therapeutics. Maybe not as uh, excited as the equity markets, but maybe that's exactly the point. If you look at today's data, yes, we had a 30,000 rise in initial claims. Nobody wants to see that, and the levels are high. But if you look at where all the experts thought things would be in February, March for today, the markets are much better off. The economy's much better off. Of course, many people aren't better off. 
And that's what we would hope for would happen over the next several months. And intraday of 10 says it all. After the data was released, especially the small jump in claims, rates actually moved a bit lower. But there's no denying that if you started Friday's 82 basis point close for a 10-year, we've built up a little bit of cushion here. And if you contrast U.S. interest rates with European interest rates starting on August 1st, you can clearly see that they flopped. We're more optimistic because our rate structure is aiming a little bit higher. The slope of that's aiming a little bit higher, even though the patterns have re-grabbed and are almost identical since we switched. And if you look at what's going on with the dollar, today's an important day because it looks like today we're going to close it fresh, 31-month lows, going back to the second quarter of 2018. And if you look at an intraday of the euro currency versus the dollar, you see the high right now on that chart is 119.30. If it closes above 119.36, it will join the dollar index of being an extreme unseen since Q2 2018. But it'll be on the positive side of that relationship, the strongest in 31 months. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much, uh, Rick Santelli. So Dow giving back about 100 points of its uh, record from yesterday. The Nasdaq's actually trading above the September 2 all-time record close. We'll take a break and be back in a minute. There is a twist when it comes to the SPAC frenzy on Wall Street. By the way, at least two more that I picked up, Leslie, that were priced last night. But explain to us what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, they just keep coming, David. If you boil down SPACs and private equity, though, to their most simplistic definitions, they actually sound pretty similar. You raise capital from outside investors to fund deals. Of course, SPACs typically take private companies public, and buyouts can often take public companies private, among other major key differences. But this year's SPAC frenzy, which we've been covering this week in our segment called SPAC in Action, is shifting attention to the private equity model. Here's BlackRock's Larry Fink, who said last month that the SPAC frenzy could put pressure on the buyout industry. In many cases, I think SPACs in, uh, could replace uh, many private equity uh, platforms because they could, they could be another avenue for organizations or subsidiaries of organizations to be spun out. So if SPACs continue to, to grow in importance, I do believe it's going to be pressure on some private equity because you're going to see more money moving into these type of organizations. Now, the concern of some is that the excess of new capital from SPACs will be chasing the same supply of deals, driving up valuations. Now, that's not always true. Not every target would benefit by a reverse merger into the public markets, just like not every capital structure would benefit from so some sort of debt through a leveraged buyout. But sources that advise on these deals have told me that competition is fierce to find targets, and in some cases, that's causing hasty due diligence and a willingness to pay higher valuations. But rather than sit out on the sideline, traditional private equity is actually getting into the SPAC game in a big way. Apollo Global, TPG, Cerberus, Oak Tree, and Fortress have all raised SPACs of their own this year, guys. Yeah, I mean, Apollo did one last night. Spartan <laughs> acquisition, too, as you know. Upsized. Uh, yeah, upsized. Upsized back last night. But, you know, you raise an interesting point in a number of different areas, Leslie. One is, of course, the question of declining quality is so much money chases fewer deals, perhaps. We've seen some of these, these companies that wouldn't otherwise go public at this point. They're very early in their gestation. So that's got to be a concern, you know, years till profitability. But then to your point, what I'm hearing more of, and I'm sure you are, is, well, we might be there for a carve-out from a company, from a divestiture from a company. Uh, at least we should be considered in that conversation when a company is thinking of selling a division or doing something along those lines. 
Absolutely. It's, it is opening up more possibilities for private equity firms. You bring up a good point. As actual sellers of their portfolio companies, if maybe the IPO markets, the traditional IPO markets aren't the route that they think they could get the highest valuation, maybe a SPAC is actually better for them. They could wind up selling their own portfolio companies uh, to other SPACs, uh, even if they have their own SPACs that they're running. Another conversation that's actually happening a lot in Silicon Valley is VCs are uh, are listing their own SPACs and have considered, although this hasn't actually happened yet, but there have been discussions about potentially acquiring portfolio companies of their own through their SPAC out of their actual venture capital fund, which of course raises all sorts of challenges at the board level and with their fellow VCs who have invested in these companies, but all really interesting considerations. And I do think we'll start to hear more uh, with regard to conflicts of interest that arise in these worlds. That that would be certainly a conflict. But yeah, Wall Street will always go as close as it can, if not way over the line (laughs) in terms of pursuing conflicts, if it means actually ability to make money. Leslie, thank you for your continued coverage of this important area. Let's get a look at shares of uh, Intuit. You see it there. And Square, uh, both up. The Justice Department just clearing Intuit's $7.1 billion purchase of Credit Karma. Intuit announced this morning it would sell Credit Karma's tax preparation unit to Square. Now, the Department of Justice had made that divestiture, uh, of that unit at least, a condition of its approval. And so the deal is proceeding, given the DOJ now says, okay, we'll be right back. Allegedly, the administration has set up a rollout how they think it should occur, what will be available when and how. Um, And we'll look at that and we may alter that. We may keep the exact same outline, but that's in train now. We haven't gotten that briefing yet. I think we should be focusing on, obviously, the docs, the nurses, those people who are the first responders. I think we should also be focusing on being able to open schools as rapidly as we can. I think it can be done safely. So there's a lot to work out in the next uh, uh, two months as to exactly how it will be distributed. Now, maybe the hope is we can actually begin to distribute it. This administration can begin to distribute it before we are sworn in and take office. That's the president-elect talking to Lester Holt last night on NBC Nightly News, guys, uh, with a few different headlines, obviously talking about vaccine distribution. It's likely he'll get the presidential daily brief reading uh, today. David says we should open schools as rapidly as we can, says he would meet with uh, President Trump, of course, if asked. But uh, basically the transition team now in, in touch with federal agencies all across D.C., Yeah, uh, and it's good to see that that is moving forward. Listen, we had two hospital administrators on yesterday. We will continue to check in with them both on vaccine distribution plans and in their uh, areas uh, how bad the virus is, uh, Carl, and it's pretty bad in a lot of parts of the country. But I was a little disturbed, you know, uh, and I'm sure you may have been as well when you heard them. Doesn't seem that there's been a plan articulated fully as yet. Maybe it's just too early and there will be, but but we're not there yet. No, it's true. And you got record deaths in uh, Maine, Missouri, North Dakota, Oregon, Wisconsin. Deaths, even though we're beginning to see some uh, signs of peaking in states like South Dakota. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.